This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Goldman, and my guest this week is Mike Dudas. Mike started his career at Disney, helped build Google's payment business, and worked at Venmo before taking the plunge into entrepreneurship and crypto full-time. He co-founded two businesses, and now is an early stage investor at the firm he started, Sixth Man Ventures. We cover his career arc and dig into the highs and lows along the way before discussing what has him most interested in Web3 at the moment. Please enjoy my conversation with Mike Dudas. Mike, thank you for joining me today. Hey, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Eric. Mike, I thought a fun place to start with you is just every time I bring up your name, it feels like everybody knows you. Your network seems massive. There's a, kind of like this joke I had with another friend of the seven degrees of Dudas. You've done a lot over your career. And I do think that your network and your relationships are one of the keys to your success. So I thought it'd be fun to take a look back of why is it that it seems like you're so interconnected in all these different spaces? I am a natural extrovert. I enjoy humans. I enjoy particularly when it comes to work and business. I think I value the relationship side of business a lot more than the average person. In addition, in terms of the businesses that I like to build and participate in, and particularly as I've gotten further along in my career and sort of off the pre-programmed big company track to where I can start my own businesses and work on things that I'm excited about, Everything that I've focused on for pretty much over a decade now has had a very strong social component to it from entering fintech at Google Wallet and then moving to Venmo, which was one of the first social money apps, was just really attractive to me, to Button, which a mobile commerce company. And the whole idea was how do we connect people using one app to another app through deep linking technology? So just that connectivity. And then obviously moving full-time into cryptocurrency, where a humongous part of how these blockchain networks work is through technical consensus, but certainly like social consensus, whether in a formal pattern called a DAO or a decentralized autonomous organization, or through other consensus mechanisms. Ultimately, I really enjoy working on things that connect people 
And by virtue of that, I've met a tremendous number of people. The other fun thing is I'm a very transparent and a very honest person. So I think people either gravitate to or are repelled by that, but you can very distinctly understand your positioning and relationship with people. So the people that I get along with, they know where they stand and the people that I don't also do. I think that's different than a lot of people who sort of keep their emotions private and internal with respect to folks. And I've just found that my approach has been really good for me and really helped me self-select and other people self-select into really narrowing to the folks who want to work with me. Your career was started with bigger companies. You were at Disney and then to move to Google and you mentioned some of the other places you went. Were you always thinking, I want to be an entrepreneur and start companies and build things? Or did you at one point think, I really want to be the next Bob Iger? Definitely the former. And what was really interesting is I was so mystified about how to make it happen. And the reason is I'm not an engineer. So I graduated from Stanford and I tried to be an engineer. My dad is, my brother is. And I always kind of looked and said, well, if I can't code and I can't program and can't create software, how do I start a technology company? And it was frankly very terrifying. So I spent a lot of time, first decade of my career, learning media, media technology, and then in payments technology and really apprenticing. I didn't co-found my first company until 34. But I had a sense from kind of my mid-20s that I was not going to be somebody who was going to have great success moving up you know, the chain of command at a large company. One, didn't have the patience for it. Two, didn't have the ability to show deference in a hierarchy and really felt confident in my particular viewpoints and really enjoyed debate. And again, that openness and transparency and honesty that can be fantastic and entrepreneurial endeavors when you're your own boss is a big backfire in many cases in big hierarchical organizations. So always wanted to be, but was terrified, didn't know how I'd make it happen. And I was fortunate enough in 2014 to meet up with a group of folks who wanted to start a company. And the CEO, Mike Coney, had experience. It was his second startup. So learned a lot starting a company with somebody who had done it before. And along this path, so it's media to fintech and payments. When did crypto enter the picture? For me, I know that I looked at it, rejected it, then came back around and made more sense after I kind of had a different view. Other people, it was instant. They knew right away, this is what I want to be doing. The thing that really appealed to me, well, one, I was fortunate that by the time I discovered Bitcoin, Bitcoin was essentially, I mean, there were certainly other tokens in 2013 when I really became fully aware of cryptocurrency, but Bitcoin was by far the largest. And I came across it in two ways. One, in the course of my work. So I was working at Braintree, which owned Venmo at the time. And Braintree is a payment gateway similar to Stripe. They powered payments for Uber and Airbnb. And we were thinking about adding Bitcoin as a payment method for Uber and Airbnb. And the idea was that at the time, Bitcoin was a low-cost, global, permissionless, anybody could access it with just a wallet, payments network. So merchants were really interested in it because credit card payments are not cheap and at times high fraud rates certainly with respect to these mobile apps. So we're considering Bitcoin as a potential solution to that. We've certainly learned in the decades since that the volatility of Bitcoin and a number of other factors make it perhaps not ideal for those kind of low value payments, just the cost of the network as well. So once I looked at it from a very practical level of, hey, what problem can it solve? And then got really into the philosophy of it. Okay, well, this is money that's not tied to the state, not necessarily backed by the force of a military, but backed by energy, 
No single person controls it. So Bitcoin just grabbed my attention deeply. I read an article that Chama wrote around 2013. I think it was in Bloomberg that I read it. Then it described Bitcoin as schmuck insurance. So if the world went to hell, you know, if money printing happened, if governments turned authoritarian, it was a good hedge. So anyway, I bought some Bitcoin in 2013. I was fortunate because I was a startup entrepreneur at the time, not paying myself a lot. Had our first child living in New York City. Fortunately, Bitcoin paid the bills for a while as it went up in price. But yeah, that's how I discovered it. Discovered it through working with Coinbase was actually going to power this for Venmo and Braintree. PayPal then bought Braintree Venmo and killed the project. And frankly, in hindsight, it was the right decision because Bitcoin's still not used for payments. But that was my introduction. And then for about four years, I was sort of a quasi-Bitcoin maximalist. And it was just the one coin for me. I actually missed out on Ethereum. And frankly, I didn't jump in full-time until 2018. There was this five-year period where I missed a lot of really incredible developments. And what was the reason for that? Why didn't you jump in earlier? So I was working at Braintree Venmo, which was acquired by PayPal, and had the opportunity to start a company. Was interested in cryptocurrency, but it was still kind of a hobbyist thing at that point. It was too early for me. I wasn't far out there. I was still pretty traditional in my background and interests and where I'd worked. And so I started a company in the other area that I was excited about, which was mobile commerce. It was, as I mentioned, it was a mobile affiliate business that connected different mobile applications together. Hey, if you're inside of Foursquare, which was similar to Yelp, and you were looking at a restaurant page and you wanted to order delivery, we enabled you to click a button that would allow you to order seamless or to make a reservation with OpenTable and deep link between these different apps. So it was a lot of fun. Did that for four years and then was starting to watch the ICO craze and see sort of the advancements that were happening within blockchain networks and within the crypto ecosystem as smart contracts were introduced on Ethereum and taking off and decided that it was mind-blowing. A lot of what I'd worked on to that date was, I think, really interesting, but incremental innovation. So using legacy financial infrastructure and then putting a nice UI UX on top of them. And crypto networks felt fundamentally different. It was really interesting to me that your father's an engineer, your brother, you try to be an engineer. You had a fear that I hear a lot. I was just reading one of Paul Graham's old essays about all the reasons why people don't do startups. And one of them is I'm not technical enough. I'm not savvy enough. But then you went into a highly technical startup. What along the way got you to that point? And what skill sets do you bring to running a startup without having that technical background? It gets back to the first question you asked, which was, hey, it feels like seven degrees of separation. A lot of folks know you. So I've been incredibly fortunate to now, even as a venture capitalist, I work with a lot of people who I've met throughout my career and some of the favorite people. So what happened is I was working at Venmo and it's that kind of situation that people talk about where if you work long enough and hard enough, luck happens, you're in the right place at the right time. So I met just an incredible entrepreneur. He's actually running a company and CEO of a company that we've invested in on my venture capital firm, Six Man Ventures now. But at the time, he was heading up mobile engineering for Venmo. His name's Chris Mattern. So he's an engineer with an incredible product mind. One of the things I'm best at is being sort of an evangelical salesperson. So basically selling things that I think are much more promise-driven than 
again, incremental. Like I would not be the best Google ad salesperson 20 years after Google's founding. I wouldn't be the best seller of widgets, but selling something that is coming soon or has great potential, I'm good at that. So pairing me with Chris, we worked together at Venmo and became good friends. And we would go out to lunch and you know go grab a beer after work. And we just continue to kick around ideas. And I think we both spurred each other to really imagine that we wanted to start a company together. While we were doing that, as I mentioned, we happened to meet a guy named Mike Ciccone, who was the CEO and original founder of Button. And instead of starting a company, me and Chris had a few ideas. Meeting Mike, we met through Graycroft, who was an investor in Venmo, and then was an investor in Button, which is the company we co-founded, gave us the courage to jump. So Chris gave me the courage and then us meeting Mike, it was like, okay, we can do this. We've got somebody with a lot of experience who's very formidable, who's courageous, who's done it before. But I still was like, how are we going to turn this thing that on paper, you know, it's worth less than 10 million, not a ton of code written. There's six of us at this point. How are we going to turn that into a big business? It was daunting and scary, but that terrifying vision of failure obviously is what motivates you to figure stuff out. Yeah, it's so fascinating as someone who's in a similar seat today, the idea of like courage being such a big thing. It's a small thing. I think even Josh Wolf wrote about it, but like in the venture capital business, you're in the business of manufacturing courage, which is people can do great things. They doubt themselves to even do it. And you're just terrified of how the hell am I going to be able to pull this off? Oh, absolutely. And so I'll just add this. While I'm somebody who is an extrovert and really likes to connect with people, I'm also a very anxious person. I do worry, and I actually have social anxiety, like have been diagnosed with like social anxiety disorder, but that drives me to almost be more and more outgoing. So I was like manufacturing worries is kind of my point with this anxiety, which was holding me back from like actually doing something that compared to the actual courage it takes to do things like go fight in a war starting a company is like very low on the list of courageous things. But anyway, my mind works in a way that at the time it was mentally blocking me from taking the leap. And what it helped with also was we founded the company with multiple folks, which helped us, I think, arrive at good ideas and bad ideas sooner and figure out which was which. The next company I founded, The Block, did it more in a solo manner. I had one co-founder, Jake McGraw, who's wonderful. But having fewer founders, actually, it was helpful to have a lot more. We pivoted button much more quickly and realized what was working and not working because we had more folks to kind of debate it there. Did you exit button before moving to the block? What happened between those two spots? No, I found my replacement. So I was the chief revenue officer. So I didn't want to leave the company high and dry. So basically, what happened is, as we got to the point where By the time I left, Button was 40 people, maybe, might have been 50, four years into the company. And I was managing almost 10 people. And it wasn't my specialty, managing a large sales team. So we realized to take the sales organization to the next level, we need to bring in somebody who's managed. So we found somebody who had managed at a similar business, a much larger team. So it was a really smooth transition. So where did the idea for the block come from? So I knew I wanted to move into the crypto ecosystem. I went out on paternity leave from the startup button, and I was spending all my time. I was fortunate enough to get into some of these telegram groups with like crypto insiders. I would read the chat and I didn't understand what the hell was going on. And I'd ask a question and feel like a dummy. 
people were actually really kind, would be patient and teach and learn. So I'd started to ask for meetings with folks. And I basically went on like a six-week tour of like the U.S., went out to SF. This is after I returned from paternity leave and said, look, I'm leaving. I'm going to start a company in the crypto space. And this was early. This was like before we really had the crypto application layer. So I didn't know what I would do. What year was this? This was late 2017 is when I decided to leave. And early 2018 is when I actually did leave and jump into crypto full time. Great timing, right at the peak of the market. So I jumped in right at the peak, early 2018, I think right around when Ethereum and Bitcoin peaked. It was wild. But it was good because people were euphoric and you could meet a tremendous number of people rapidly. What I realized is I was clueless. So we were still at the protocol layer development phase and not being an engineer, I didn't really see how I could really contribute deeply to any individual project. I didn't want to go work at like a big company. I don't even know if I would have been hired, but I didn't apply to like Coinbase or any of those companies. I knew I wanted to do a startup or invest. And I just, again, investing, I didn't really have the knowledge to be able to do it. So I was like, what are my problems? It's really complex. People don't understand what's going on. So I created a Slack group and then started publicly talking about a lot where people like me who were really big enthusiasts could come in and end up getting into the thousands of people in the Slack group. And it was called The Block. I think it was called Crypto Mafia at first, and then we changed it to The Block. And then basically took that initial community and said, look, I'm going to raise some money and create, at the time, it was going to be retail-focused, but a media and information business that was crystal clear, crypto simplified, was going to be the original tagline. Anyway, market went to heck straight down as I was raising for that. But I was fortunate enough to be able to raise a couple million dollars and was fortunate enough to be able to recruit in just some incredible journalistic and research talent. So a guy named Larry Cermak to run our research division and a guy named Frank Shaparo to be our news director. And they were young. So this is really weird for me because I'm like a boomer. I'm 43 now. I was 40. I liked your junior boomer title. You're a little bit older than me. I thought we were Gen X. I didn't know we were junior boomers. I'm a junior boomer. Exactly. I have used that term and I enjoy it. And I think, look, I'm flexible of mind and curious. So I was able to attract emerging talent. Frank came from Business Insider. Larry had worked for like a research brand. But the point is, I've always said I like to work in areas where there are no experts. And there are still very, very few experts on nearly any topic in crypto because things change so fast. There are obviously some in certain areas, things like Sam CZ Sun, who works at Paradigm and Security. And there are definitely experts out there, but even they're constantly learning and figuring out the security folks, new attack vectors, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, so market retail left pretty quickly through 2018. And we ended up becoming much more institutional focused at the block. So Again, fortunate enough that Larry and Steven Zheng, who was our research director and is still at the block, as is Larry, as is Frank, fantastic. They recruited in great people and built a really, really fun culture. And we were punchy. We were really punchy. It's crypto. So to stand out, I would use Twitter pretty aggressively to say, we're doing a great job and these other folks aren't. And definitely overdid it in the sort of 2019 bear market which is very similar to what we're experiencing today in many ways, where you just get people, everything's gone down and it's sort of stagnant. 
So people just start arguing with one another versus showing euphoria. So anyway, we built a business through that really difficult time period. And it was a lot of fun. And it ended up being the right thing for me from a personality perspective. It connected me with so many wonderful folks. But I only sat in the CEO role at the block for about two years. Again, the organization started to grow to a size where, again, I don't love managing dozens and dozens of people. And again, we went remote, COVID hit in 2020. And then generationally, as I mentioned, I was 15 years older than most of the employees. So it was a very interesting thing to manage a team that was of such a different age and generation from me. So you ended up transitioning out of the CEO role to the chairman role in early 2020. I totally understand what you mean by there's no experts. It's an interesting place to be. It's all new. But journalism, there are experts in writing journalism. And so to go from like, okay, I'm a media guy. I understand that. I got fintech. I'm following you. I'm following you. And now you're going to write a journalistic piece. It seems to me spotting that young talent early is clearly a huge skill. But how did you recruit people like to the journalistic side? Like, we're going to be journalists. We're going to be reporters. There's a way to do this. What was your training on that side of it? Again, being a really good salesperson. So it's that promise-driven sale. The thing didn't exist. So hey, we've got a blank palette in an emerging industry and ecosystem. You've got the opportunity of a lifetime. That was sort of the pitch to Frank and some of the earlier journalists who joined the team. Hey, do you really want to be a business insider or do you want to be at Financial Times and spend 10, 15 years just kind of like tick, 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 moving up the journalism hierarchy, writing one piece every couple of weeks? Or do you want to be in the center of one of the fastest moving, fastest developing, dynamic, fiery, relevant ecosystems out there in business. That was the pitch, certainly a risk for all of those folks that I think most would say it paid off for them, their individual profiles, their knowledge, and just their enjoyment. I think most would say it was a really good career choice. What does it mean, promise-driven sale? So it's a little bit different. You can't necessarily point to years of, call it, empirical evidence. So in like enterprise sales, if I'm selling software, I can't look and say, hey, this particular marketing technology software leads to 20% uplift in engagement or growth or whatever metric you're looking at. It's more like, hey, this is going to be a complete paradigm shift. We're going from desktop to mobile and you need to take some of your experimental budget and you have to try this. If you don't, you're likely going to miss out. And then basically, you need to have some credibility or point to similar examples or analogies. And then once you've made the sale and have people using it, you do have to deliver results. Otherwise, you'll have folks churn out. I'm curious on the promise-driven sale, the idea that you're good at being evangelical about a product. It's something I struggle with. I love selling. When I believe in something, I can get behind it. But then I've also, just as a trained investor, one of the things about putting your opinions out there that they train you not to do or to be careful about is having the flexibility to change your mind. So how do you balance promoting something, caring about something, saying so adamantly, this is the future, but then also like you went from Bitcoin maximalist to ETH to Solana, like you've clearly been able to change your point of view. Does that ever make you feel like you lost credibility with yourself or something? Or how do you handle that? Certainly in crypto, it's extremely difficult to be somebody who changes your mind. 
In other words, if you're changing your mind and you're being public with strong both opinions, but also assertions and perhaps even factual statements and the facts change, you're surely going to be called out for it. So I'm not afraid of that. And I'm not afraid to say when I'm wrong, I would never hold people or myself to like 100% accuracy rate on proclamations. I think the important thing is not to get massive, massive things wrong. By the way, there are cases like FTX being one where many, many, many people got that exceptionally wrong. I didn't invest in FTX, but I certainly had no idea there was that level of fraud. It was an exchange that I, six months before it went down, would have recommended folks potentially use. When you're your most wrong, I think people have to understand the context of certainly the information you had when you were making the assertion. But with respect to, I think, which cryptocurrencies and which networks like I support and as investor where I focus my time, I've definitely been willing to learn and change my mind. So Bitcoin is still incredibly interesting to me as an individual. I think it's important and I think it will over time continue to be important as an ossified, decentralized, global permissionless protocol for the transfer of value. I think Bitcoin as a currency will be important 50, 100 years from now. I really do. And I don't know if it'll be a tremendous amount more than that. I'm not sure, but I don't have a high degree of confidence that it will be. The things that change is, I think, the best minds on the engineering and development and economic side, I started to see them migrate, many of them, certainly to Ethereum, Ethereum and the EVM ecosystem of chains. And then even that ecosystem evolved over time from folks just focused on the layer one and then protocols directly launched on top of that layer one to roll-ups and other scaling solutions and then EVM sidechains and things like Polygon and Avalanche to other architectures, things like Solana and Aptos and Sui, more monolithic blockchains. The key for me as an investor is I can be interested in all of those things, but I don't necessarily invest in all those areas. So I don't invest as a professional venture capitalist in Bitcoin. I just don't see an opportunity to do that because we invest at the infrastructure and application layer, not the L1 layer. So I'm not like a hedge fund trying to trade the price of Bitcoin. So anyway, with Ethereum and the Ethereum ecosystem, there's a lot of interesting things happening there and applications being built there. So we invest and infrastructure, things like fiat on off-ramps, marketplaces, wallets, decentralized or self-sovereign identity, decentralized storage. In that Ethereum ecosystem, we do chain-specific stuff like gaming on Solana, something like Steppen, Move and Earn. But we also do a lot of stuff that's multi-chain. And not all of it was multi-chain, by the way, when we invested. So we've invested in Magic Eden, which is an NFT marketplace that started on Solana and now has expanded to Ethereum and has expanded to Polygon. And so I think it's sensible that platforms that want to reach the broadest group of people and have a high quality product would expand and service multiple chains. And you're going to see more and more in that. MetaMask currently is only ERC-20 tokens but they're going to be expanding to support Solana and other blockchains. And so I embrace that. And it's how I like to spend my time. That's the thing. And I don't guilt people who like to spend time 
in one chain unless they're closed-minded and cast aspersions on somebody else's motives and call them scammers. Like a lot of Bitcoin maximalists will call people who are focused on Ethereum or people who are focused on Solana scammers with bad intent who don't care about the mission of decentralization. Then I'll attack back. But to folks who are open-minded or who just don't bother you, I just let it be. And I find it just really interesting to follow the technological advances and to follow where the newest developers who are coming into the ecosystem go. People with no preconceived notions, that's really, really interesting to me. And certainly over the last couple of years, and certainly over the last year, they've gone to a multitude of layer one chains. So that's been exciting to me. And I think it's exciting. I've certainly changed my mind to the idea that we're anywhere close to having figured out whether there's going to be one layer one smart contract blockchain that takes 80% of the share of transactions, or if there's going to be 10 of them, I don't know. I certainly have hunches. So you invest in uncertainty and just be humble. Uh, Sometimes be humble. Sometimes be feisty when you're strong in your beliefs. And then last thing is sometimes don't take too seriously what people say and know their motivations when they're saying it. So I'll always look and try and understand the incentives of somebody who's saying something publicly. And I think people should do that when I say things as well. As someone who has strong beliefs, but maybe doesn't hold them deeply, are there things you said as a Bitcoin maximalist? Like, did you honestly believe that a lot of this stuff was a scam? And then when you changed your mind, like, were you saying the same stuff that you attacked today? Yes, yes. And I regret it. And I admit it. I've had to apologize to people and some have accepted the apology but there are a handful of extremely high profile folks who I do not believe are scammers or do not believe are malintentioned who I did cast those types of aspersions to in the 2018, 2019 period. I regret it. They've not forgiven. I don't necessarily think they're great people, but I definitely don't think they're fraudulent or scammers or some of the really strong words I use. So it gets back to that point I made earlier in our conversation where At least people know where you stand and where you did stand. And by the way, there are repercussions to saying things forcefully and being wrong. And I've been wrong. So you end up selling the block. Walk us through what happened. I kind of want to go through the ups and downs of the sale and what happened to the block. So basically, I moved to the chairman role. So I founded the block in early 2018 and was CEO for a little over two years and then moved to the chairman role right after COVID hit because I had moved with my family literally to my parents' house in Connecticut. It was difficult to run the company. And I felt the team and the business deserved a CEO who was in there. A lot of people are still working in the city. So a guy named Mike McCaffrey took over. He was a COO at the time, took over as CEO. So this was early 2020. He ran the business, was chairman of the board, We had a three-person board. And the business seemed to be running pretty well. We had some challenges, though, in terms of just funding because we had a decent-sized team. The market started to come back in 2020, but we had a decent-sized team. And I would say we didn't have more than a year of runway. So at that time, I was chatting with various folks to raise money. But Mike, who was the CEO and on the board... As part of him taking over as CEO, he and I had to jointly approve any sale of the company and or any 
funding of the company. And there are maybe one or two other things. I can't remember exactly what they were. But if we wanted to raise money, he had to agree and I had to agree. At the time, it made sense. He's the CEO. If he's going to truly run the company, he wants those rights so that I can't just go raise without his approval. But the problem was we had opportunities to raise money and I would bring them and he would kind of say, yeah, I'm working on them and nothing happened. And I'm like, well, no, I know how to raise money. This should be working. So this happened multiple times and it started to really frustrate me. So it honestly, just felt like I was literally hitting a brick wall. So I started to get the sense, hey, this guy just wants to take over the thing and he's just going to block everything. There wasn't really a lot of recourse. So maybe six, seven months later, end of 2021, he comes to me and says, if I have an opportunity to effectuate a transaction by which the team can buy out the company and it can become completely independent, would you be open to it? And yeah, I was a chairman. I knew this guy was blocking me from raising money and I was going to have to fire him to raise money. And it would have been very risky and not fair to the employees. So basically, the question was, what do you do? And I said, well, yeah, like I'd be interested in selling the company to the team. That makes a lot of sense. My mission here was I want this to be, and I've always wanted it to be, an independent voice and an objective media and research source in the industry. So if I'm no longer CEO, I'm not running it. Sure. I think it makes sense for the team to own it. And again, this is in the context of knowing that this guy's blocking me from effectively being able to raise money, isn't in a good faith way trying to raise money himself. He ended up ultimately coming to me about four months later with an offer saying, hey, I've found money to purchase your stake, the other co-founder's stake, and the investor's stake. And it's basically family money. And it turns out like his dad runs one of the biggest pension funds in the United States and like has a ton of money. So didn't set off any alarm bells. It made a ton of sense. So we ended up going through with that transaction. He told me the money came from his family and investors within two years, some within just a couple months, made a decent return on their money at a time when crypto prices from when I'd raised to that point had gone down. Anyway, sold the company and didn't think much about it other than being proud that we'd built something really exciting and enduring and still has, a, I believe, a fantastic brand and team. But yeah, fast forward. So that transaction happened in very early 2021. And then 20 months later, I find out it wasn't this guy McCaffrey's dad who loaned the money, but it was actually SBF. How did you find out? So he called me, McCaffrey called me 30 minutes before Axios was going to publish the story. Where does that leave the block today? The block is really fortunate that the senior leadership team that McCaffrey hired is, from what I understand, very talented. I've spoken with the new CEO a few times. He was a very senior executive at Politico, and he seems to be tremendous. I hear great things about him from folks at the company and elsewhere. So I think there's a really good team there. And that's why it was so goddamn disappointing to know that one person screwed up the reputation and messed up the incentives and put so much of those people's blood, sweat, and tears at risk. It was really, really frustrating for me and for many people. So I was furious to your question when I found out, obviously had a few choice words. 
he lied to me again on the phone call multiple times, called him once more the next day. He lied some more and then said, look, I'm just never talking to this guy again. And where are we in that process? I know like you and Selkis have maybe cryptically tweeted about, does it make sense to like buy something? So no, 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 I'm not involved in anything having to do with the block. So we're not going to see a DAO take over the block and have a fundraise? No, no, no. I don't really know what the process is there. If there were no encumbrances, I know that they're in really good hands and they have a really good team. I don't know what the encumbrances are. And I personally made the choice and was advised by other folks. Let it go, man. My one fear, but I don't think it's going to happen, is that one of these, I won't name anybody specific, but another really, really wealthy person who would have deep bias would buy either the block or Coindesk or one of these properties. I don't think that's going to happen. I hope it doesn't. I really do hope that maybe a non-crypto media company buys it or that it just raises some funding and operates independently. And again, it should be able to, as long as it's right-sized. So you're on from the block, you're doing six-man ventures. Did that come about while you were at the block or are you like, next chapter, I want to go into VC now? What happened is I really didn't know what I was going to do while I was chairman and before selling the block. So this whole 2020 period, I was trying to figure out, I consulted for a few companies. I wanted to work in different areas of crypto. And part of the reason I'd moved to chairman and out of the CEO role is I'd seen so many interesting things and I've been involved more in technology. So I was consulting for some companies. So through that process, I met a number of folks and talked to the number of companies. And one of the areas that I think is most important in crypto, particularly as we think about how do we move from a crypto self-referential economy to one that involves real world assets was stable coins. So I ended up fortunate enough to join Paxos, which is the third largest stable coin issuer in the world behind Tether and Circle, and worked on the stable coin business there. And I did that for about a year. And I'm still an advisor at Paxos, moved to an advisor role. While I was at Paxos working on stable coins and helping that business grow, this was right when the NFT craze started and started to become more mainstream. I bought like NBA Top Shots in 2020, started buying art blocks and CryptoPunk in early 2021. What I was seeing is a lot of angel investment opportunities. Like people knew me from the block and from just being public in crypto. So me and another friend of mine, again, it's the same thing as like starting a company. I wouldn't have started a venture capital firm solo. I'm not an operational oriented person who would have set the thing up. But one of my best friends on earth, Serge Kasarjian, who I went to college with, did. And he'd been a VC earlier in his career. And he had a lot of the same passions. And as a great compliment to me, like a very calm, very focused, COO, operationally oriented individual. We had been investing in NFTs together. Why don't we actually start a fund? We both get deal flow, know a lot of people. So we did and raised a small fund, 7.4 million. And we ended up writing 100K checks into a bunch of companies. And we were fortunate enough to get access to and be able to support some really incredible entrepreneurs. And the portfolio is on our site, sixthman.ventures. But it was companies like Magic Eden and Stepin and Layer 3 and Galaxy and Etherscan and Rainbow Wallet, and just a bunch of other really exciting companies from that first fund. So based on that, and then based on the bullishness of the market, by the end of the year, I kind of knew, hey, I love Paxos. And as I said, still an advisor there. But I knew I wanted to invest full time because I wanted to work with so many different entrepreneurs and was just so excited by it. So we ended up raising a larger fund 
It's just a hair under $140 million. We expanded from just the two of us to a team of five. I now work on it, obviously, full time. And yeah, we went from writing 100K checks to leading and co-leading rounds into pre-seed and seed stage companies, mostly. We're having a ton of fun and we're learning a lot and we're helping our portfolio companies. We're crypto native, we know folks, and we know how to launch and create companies. So as we get to, again, the infrastructure and application layer of crypto and try to build real applications that people and businesses use, some of our, call it, quote unquote, web two experience is really useful to these teams. Just listening to you. It's a story I've heard multiple times. Like I got into it, I, I traded Top Shot and started buying punks or apes or made money. And then I was doing angel deals. And I was like, I should do a fund. And maybe I did a little fund. And I've heard the story get there. There's very few people that went from $7 million fund to $140 million fund too. Yes. I think if you take risks and you'll figure out what you're really good at. So we were really good at, again, getting access to really high quality deals. And then we got lucky about the timing. There's no question that if we hadn't raised that second fund at the precise time when we did, the window would have closed and maybe the fund would have been a third of the size. Who knows? I'm excited. I hope and believe and think that the investors that supported us, limited partners, the LPs, are going to be really happy with the results. And we feel really blessed by their support of us. But yeah, there's no question that I've only been this profession of professionally investing for fewer than two years. And having money in worth approximately $150 million is obviously unnatural in the grand scheme of investing or the history of investing. But I think that we're at a point in time where, I mean, it's going to be pretty binary. Crypto is either going to work or it's not. And if it does, we're definitely seeing the absolute best entrepreneurs in the space. And because there was a bear market that immediately followed our raise, a lot of the competition or sort of not fully committed VCs left. So there's a nice crew left. It's definitely competitive, but there's also a lot of folks that we love to do business with investing alongside us. Yeah, it's funny. At the party we met at, I remember I had friends who were in VC, but it was in Art Basel. And I felt like every person I met was a 25-year-old venture capitalist who had a really amazing undergraduate and sometimes beginning of graduate work or whatever at ridiculous top name firms. And like my job's to like, I'm here to figure out what NFTs are. And I'm like, I'm here. I'm like, oh my God, there's so many. And it gets to a point about like cycles, being a professional investor in public markets. We we're in this market where valuations were really high across everything. And I think even you tweeted out yesterday about this down round thing. And so I was hoping you could touch on this tension of founder versus VC, that there's founders that feel like they raise money at good valuations or stuff they really hope to fulfill someday. And then there's VCs who are like, but we've got so much opportunity because there's going to be down rounds. And it does feel like there's a little bit of a stalemate there. And I'd like to get your perspective from both sides and how you see it playing out. I would say because we're not as multi-stage, because we're really focused on pre-seed and seed, we see the tension less. We do see it at the seed stage, to your question. And I would say that for the most part, we aren't seeing a tremendous number of down rounds at the seed stage yet. That's also because we've been investing for fewer than two years. I think we will start to see it through 2023 if the market doesn't recover fast. It's not like I'm actively seeking and looking at companies and saying, wow, where can I get 30% lower, 40% lower price than the last round they did? 
what we're in the market doing is where can we find teams building things we believe in? And can we agree on like a fair price for what additional capital should cost in this market? So there's that, the existing companies, and then there's new companies. And there's no question that new companies that raise today on average are raising at lower valuations than companies were 12, 15 months ago. But there's no question that at that point, we were in a period of euphoria. What I will say is there's going to be great outcomes and there will be great funds that invested almost entirely during that era because there's going to be phenomenal companies. And we've just seen that the positive outliers in crypto become extremely valuable and they can do so really, really fast. What's interesting, by the way, about crypto, though, is you have equity and tokens and you have these different considerations like in selling a token. If you're a venture capitalist and you believe you're growing these businesses or protocols long term, what implication does that have on selling something in year two or year three? There's a whole host of things and things in the industry that people are figuring out what the norms should be. Ultimately, your job as investors return capital to the folks who invest in you. So you have to try to maximize that. And part of that, by the way, is by supporting the entrepreneurs that you work with. So if you do exit positions, doing it in a prudent way. We're definitely in a period where people are doing, call it extensions at similar prices. We are seeing some rounds happening at lower prices than where people last raised. But for the most part, they're doing so after exploring the market, realizing there's not a market for priced up rounds unless there's a tremendous amount of traction. And it's hard to have a tremendous amount of traction for most application layer businesses right now because there's fewer customers, business and consumer. So the rounds tend to be priced fairly. At the same time, there's a boatload of VC money. There is no question that I look around the market and I see some deals still getting done at valuations that I consider insane or irresponsible. And I don't know how those deals are going to turn out, but I would never begrudge an entrepreneur who has the opportunity to raise a lot of money at a high valuation. It certainly increases the, this is your shot profile, but there's obviously bigger trade-offs to not having any money or running out of money. So everything ultimately in life is a trade-off. So right now, our goal, frankly, is we're seeing fewer call it new deals. And so we're working very closely with our existing portfolio companies. We've already put significant additional money into one that we feel has made good progress at a slightly higher valuation than the last round we invested in. So we feel really good about that. And I think you'll see more of that of funds opportunistically offering capital to emerging, exciting companies within their portfolio. Of the deals that come across your desk, what's the area that's right now most exciting for you? So the profile of entrepreneur that we're most excited about right now is folks who have been through a couple cycles or at least one cycle and have learned something and have some unique insight and then are coming out and doing something new or a slightly different model on what happened in the past. So examples of that could be centralized prime brokers were really a mess in the last cycle. Perhaps we can build a big portion of that over time on chain in a capital efficient way. So we're looking at some businesses that were CFI or CDFI that might be able to become DeFi oriented purely. And we like entrepreneurs who worked let's just say, on some of the businesses that worked and didn't work and have unique insights. 
improvements on existing products, stablecoins should pay interest. Why don't I earn any interest on my USDC or my USDT? So we're looking at stuff like that. And then we're looking at infrastructure that makes it easier for developers to build on blockchains. That's been a really big problem. It should be much easier to just get up and get started and get, call it data from the blockchain that you're trying to build on, set up your environment, et cetera. So we've done a lot of that. And then things that make it easier for consumers and users to interact with blockchains. And that could be anything from wallets with better security models. Seed phrases are really confusing and hard for people. And we see tons of hacks happening to individuals and businesses. So things that can maybe improve the experience and make it easier for people to use crypto applications. Twitter, you're really good at it. You seem to enjoy it. You seem to tweet at all hours of the day. I was always on Twitter for an informational source, but we could never tweet when we were at Fidelity. And then when I left, I was like, I'll just try this first anonymous with the NFT thing, which was really my gateway. Now I kind of like it, but I'm still don't think I have it figured out or understand it. I'm curious for you, how much of this is a personal outlet? We talked a little bit about how you handle having strong opinions. There's people that absolutely love you. Then there's people that come after you with hate, how you handle it and if you like it or not. Twitter is a medium that just works for me. It's one where you can engage. It's a little more select than the average social network. So you can connect with people and have a dialogue. And I've been at it for, I think, 16 years or something now. So I'm experienced at it. To your point, I do a high volume of posting. I just focus. It's like I don't really focus on any other social media. Like I don't really use Facebook or Instagram. The only other ones I use are ones where I am, again, chatting or socially interacting with people like Telegram and WhatsApp. So yeah, I just focus on that one social medium. And I use it in a very focused way where I'm primarily talking about crypto. So it's been good for me along the way. It's helped me find business partners. It's helped me find investments. It's helped me find jobs. And it's helped me start companies. I've gotten such an incredible amount of value out of Twitter. It's definitely gotten me in trouble at times. My usage and manner of using it has changed over the last five years or so even more so over the last, I think, two and a half or three years, I've moved to regularly deleting my tweets. Now, if somebody wants to access them, a lot of them are indexed. People can screenshot. I'm under no illusion that they've disappeared forever. What led to that decision? The thing that led to it was that during my moving from quote unquote Bitcoin maximalism towards more open-mindedness, it was just so hostile, the reaction of Bitcoin maxis. And I felt like the people responding to me and the people quote tweeting and taking my comments out of context, many were just truly mentally ill and many were anons. So it was like asymmetric in terms of the cost to them to say really nasty things and to rally a mob. And it was just like too much. And also, yeah, my perspective had changed on things. But when you get an army of people who hate you and then they go and look at your history and then take out of context. We've seen this happen time and again to people. I just felt like making it easy for them by just leaving all this content out there that much of which can get taken out of context. It just didn't make sense. There was a period of time I didn't block anybody for years. And then I started blocking people, deleting tweets. It's worked for me. It's freed me up, I think, to be more open and more honest about how I think about things. I think 90, 95% of the viewing happens anyway in the first couple of days. And so people see them and 
people remember them if they disagree or if you say something nasty. So I tried to stay away from that. I'm certainly not using it the same way I did in that 2018-19 period. After the debate about you deleting tweets came up, everything it opened up a whole conversation. I talked to some people that are reporters. I talked to people that are professionals. And I've said, like, it's definitely one of those things where you know it can still be found. So by not deleting it, you definitely have a sense of, okay, if I say this, anyone could read this and take this out of context. But to your point, I don't think I've ever <laughs> seen someone bring up a historical tweet except to do some obnoxious victory lap that, oh, see, I told you this was going to happen when I did or usually an attack on someone else to take them out of context. Like, is this you? Did you say this? Yeah, exactly. And I'll readily admit that even though I do delete my old tweets, I've done that even since I started deleting to other folks. So maybe that's not the fairest thing to do, but people still do it to me. It is what it is. It's life, but it's also like Twitter and it's supposed to be a little fun and feisty. And to your point, you've gotten a lot more benefit than all this shenanigans. So it was worth it. We end these conversations, kind of the same question. So I'm excited to hear you've been a builder, you're building a company now, you're an investor. What are you most excited to see built or be part of over the next six months? And what are you most excited over the next six years? Over the next six months, I'm most excited about developer infrastructure being built. So on the developer side, developer infrastructure. So tooling and environments and things that make it easier for somebody who earnestly wants to build, whether that's building on Ethereum Layer 1 or Solana or Polygon or Aptos or SWE or Avalanche, but that they can come in, figure out what the best blockchain environment is for them and for their application needs, and they can do that. So we're putting our money where our mouth is and investing in companies that support that. So that's on the developer side. On the financial side, we want to see a movement towards DeFi. So I'm excited about some of the emerging DeFi models I see. As I said, like a DeFi prime broker model, stable coins that pay interest so that people can actually keep their treasuries on chain and earn interest. You can't really do that now. You've seen some companies that are starting to offer that type of product. So really excited about that. And that's a movement toward real world assets on chain and getting yield that is not self-referential in DeFi. And then the last piece in the next six months on the consumer side, I really want to see and have started to see better wallet models, both social fund wallets, things like Floor and Easy, which are investments we've made, but also really secure MPC and cloud-based wallets that are easier for the average person to use versus perhaps having to store seed phrases and security boxes like at the bank. On a six-year time horizon, I really deeply want to see consumer use cases of quote unquote Web3, but really like crypto applications. So I want to see credibly decentralized censorship resistant alternatives to big, big, big financial applications. So I want censorship resistant stable coins that can move globally so that anybody anywhere has the option to use a bank account or to use a self-custodial account where they can have access to dollar equivalents and can off-ramp them and on-ramp them if need be. And that's a big goal. And then on the non-financial application side, I'd really like to see, for example, a decentralized social network. And I think you're starting to see the base layer for that with like Farcaster and Lens, where you can create your own profile, your social graph, and then others can build applications on top of those protocols where your social graph can be taken from one application to another. 
and also your content can live forever. So I'm excited. Those are two things, but they both get to the theme of, I really, really want 100 million people six years from now or more using these permissionless and distributed alternatives to centralized financial and non-financial applications. I'm definitely going to do a episode on stable coins at some point. Coming from Fidelity in the money markets has always been a thing that's absolutely fascinating to me. So that one definitely deeply resonates. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 